Well, this might surprise you, but, uh, but despite my physique and raw strength, I, uh, I never had it in me to become an NFL football player. In fact, I never had it in me to be a good high school football player. I, I ran the 40-yard dash in a few seconds short of 10 minutes. Uh, so, so I was pretty, pretty slow, and uh, I had the speed of a three-toed sloth, really, but no, I, I wasn't that slow. I, I did have one moment of football greatness, rushing for two touchdowns and over 100 yards on four carries in the fourth quarter against Northern Lebanon. That was my freshman year, and uh, I got in the game because we were beating them so badly, and so they, shirk, get in and do something. So um, I ended up quitting football and, and uh, becoming unexceptional at golf instead. So that was great. So I, I never had speed. I never had quickness. I never had strength. I never even had confidence, which is a really bad combination for athletes. I was thoroughly average. Chris was a better athlete and uh, is a better athlete. I wanted to run fast, but I couldn't run fast. I, I couldn't seem to unhook the invisible wagon that was always attached to me. I just didn't have it in me. My best sport was baseball. I, I love to pitch. My fastball probably never exceeded 70 to 75 miles an hour. I think there are knuckleball pitchers that, that pitch faster than that. But the, uh, the coach used to say, you can't teach speed. And he was right. You can't teach speed. If you don't have it in you, you can't do it. You can't do it. Even with proper form, I could not hit 90. My freshman year, I remember going to uh, the varsity game after playing JV and showing up at LS, where Garden Spot was playing LS, and, and uh, I wasn't on varsity. Rob Berger was on the LS team. I don't know if you remember that name, but he was drafted in 1994 uh, by the Phillies in the 10th round of the uh, June amateur draft. Berger could hit the 90s. He was exceptional. I couldn't. If you have it in you, you do it. If you don't have it in you, you can't do it. No amount of conditioning on planet Earth would have gotten me to run a 4340. It just wasn't going to happen. No workout that I could have done would have strengthened my arm in order to hit the 90s. God has to put it in you in order for you to do it. And if he doesn't, you can't. Today's message is more than Jesus saying, follow my example and do it. It's more than that. He implied much more. His love for us and in us is the key to loving like him. Jesus is love, and if he isn't in us, if we are not united to him by faith, following his example is, quite frankly, impossible. You won't do it. You won't be able to do it. And we'll see this play out more clearly in the coming months as we we get into chapters 14 through 17 in, in the rest of the upper room moment. But only if Christ is in you can you love each other like Jesus did. John 13 is much more than follow Jesus' example, and I hope to show that to you. It begins with the glory of God. God is glorious. God is glorious. Take note of verses 31 through 33, that both the Son of Man and God are glorified. 
The the Father and the Son exist in perfect unity and share eternal glory. When one is glorified, the other is glorified. So it says, when he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. You ever think about this, that Jesus never tried to stop Judas from going, from leaving? He didn't ask him to stay. In fact, Jesus said, what you are going to do, do quickly. Judas's betrayal was part of God's sovereign plan. John used the Greek word doxazo, or glorify, five times in, in two verses. And he wanted to capture for us Christ's emphasis on his own glory and the glory of his Father a co-eternal and cohesive glory. To be glorified means the great inherent glory and worth and excellence of the Son of Man was made public. It was revealed that he received the glory due his name and accomplishments. Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified. It was his time. It was time for his glorious grace and his glorious love to shine, to be clearly and powerfully manifested and acknowledged on the cross. The events leading to the cross were in motion, and within hours, the glory of God would shine through the lifeless body of the Messiah stretched out on the cross as vicarious atonement for sinners And then the glory of God would radiate from a risen Savior and then through an ascending Savior. Let me draw your attention to four things in verses 31 through 32. Number one, the Son of Man is glorified. The Son of Man is glorified. Jesus is the Son of Man. And it was time for Him to be glorified. Earlier in John 12, Jesus had said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he explained what that glorified or, or glorification would be. And he said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. His glorification would come through crucifixion. And the fruit that the crucifixion bore and his glorification was now. Jesus is glorified through the cross because his suffering and pain and death show us the great extent and magnitude of his love and mercy and grace and the extent to which he went to obey and fulfill all of God's perfect will. Jesus is glorified in the redemption of innumerable sinners from all nations. John 7, 39 says the Holy Spirit was given after Jesus was glorified or after his death, burial, resurrection, ascension. John 12, 16 alludes to the same thing. Jesus is glorified in his ascension where he takes his rightful seat of glory and privilege at the right hand of God and continually intercedes for us. He got there through the cross. Number two, God is glorified in the Son of Man. God is glorified in the Son of Man. Not only is God glorified by the Son of Man, God is glorified in the Son of Man. When you look at Jesus, when you look at his person and his accomplishments, in him you see the glory of God. 
When the Son is glorified, the Father is glorified then in the Son. Jesus prayed in John 17, glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. The Father is glorified in the obedience of His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Number three, God will glorify the Son of Man in Himself. Jesus is glorified in God. In John 17, Jesus prayed to God, glorify your Son and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus told the Jews in John 8, 54, it is my Father who glorifies me. Think about this. God glorifies Jesus. Listen to Paul in Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and catch this, to the glory of God the Father. God exalts Jesus. And when Jesus is glorified as Lord, it glorifies God. Number four, God will glorify the Son of Man immediately. God will glorify the Son of Man immediately. God would glorify Him. It was time. Soon betrayal, then death and redemption, then burial and life, and then ascension into glory. It was time. You know, sometimes the the smallest things make a huge difference. Do you agree with that? You find out a little tip and, and it'll just totally transform your life. Well, I'd like to give you a tip. May I give you a tip about the Bible? It can make a big difference in your life, so please catch this. Really simple. Here's the tip. The main point of the Bible is this. God is glorious. That's what the Bible's about. God is glorious. The Bible is a book about God, about God's glory, about God's magnificence. The Bible is God's self-revelation, words unveiling His greatness. And the goal of studying the Bible should be to encounter God. You should study the Bible to see and to savor the glory of God, His excellence, His magnificence. God is glorious. That's the point of the Bible. The Bible is not a life map or a rule book, or an instruction manual, or an advice column that will improve your life. In one sense, it's these things. In one sense. But if we understand the Bible to be primarily about us, then we miss the main point. The Bible is about God. So the tip is to study the Bible to encounter and enjoy God. And if we know that, then we're less apt to diminish the Bible into moralism. Just follow Jesus' example. Isn't that what the Bible's about? Well, we'll diminish it into that if we don't get the main point. The good news of the Christian faith is not follow the example of Jesus. That's not the good news. That's not the gospel. Verse 33, uh, Jesus said to them, Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. 
Jesus called them technia, little children. Now that is just packed with affection. Jesus was so affectionate at that moment, little children, little children. Only John uses this term in his gospel and in his uh, first epistle and maybe some of the other, maybe just his first epistle. The love of Jesus left such an indelible mark on John. He received it from Jesus. He knew it so well. In less than 24 hours, Jesus would be murdered. Afterwards, he would rise and then he would return to his father. They, the disciples would long for him. They would desire him. And in verse 33, Jesus referenced something that he said previously to the Jews. In John 7, Jesus told the Jews this, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, but he adds this, and you will not find me. You will seek me, but you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Notice that he told the Jews, you will not find me, but he didn't tell his disciples that. Then in John 8, 21, Jesus told the Jews, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sins. You will die in your sins. Where I am going, you cannot come. He didn't tell his disciples that they would die in their sins. The disciples would follow Jesus into eternal life. Jesus would absolutely save his people. But first, he needed to travel alone on the road of wrath and agony through the cross, and then they could follow him. Verse 33 will become clearer next week and in the following weeks in chapter 14. To all moms, just want to say we love you, okay? I know that, that uh, Mother's Day is two weeks out, but we can appreciate and love you outside of Mother's Day, amen? Maybe you'd like flowers a little bit more often. But uh, moms, did you ever have to go out for some errands, okay? And before you left, you, you gave your children something that they needed to accomplish, now, now, while I am gone, I want you to do this, okay? Have you, ever, have you ever done that? While you are gone, you have an expectation of your children. And maybe, maybe you even brought something back for them to enjoy as a little treat if they were faithful. Now, I'm the baby of the family, all right? <laughs> um, so my parents... My parents would sometimes uh, give Val and Chris the very distinct... And, and privilege, high privilege, of watching me uh, while they were away to make sure that I didn't hurt myself or burn the house down. Uh, so it was like, please, please just watch over your brother. Be kind to him and, and only use the straight jacket if necessary. So it, uh, I don't, they never use one on me. I don't think my parents had it. But I cannot speak to, for their thoughts, okay? So... Jesus would return to his father shortly, but they would stay. And Jesus had some things that he wanted them to do while they were gone and until he returned. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. This is what Jesus expects of each of his followers He is not here anymore. His presence is here through the Holy Spirit, but he and his body at the right hand of the Father, he is not here, but while he is gone, he expects us to love each other. This is the Christian life. 
Love the church, but love it like Jesus does. Love the church, but love it like Jesus does. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you. Is love a new commandment? Well, in Leviticus 19, 18, God said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In Leviticus 19.34, God said, love the stranger who sojourns with you as yourself. The command to love is not new. It wasn't new then, but something about it was new. Jesus didn't say, as you love yourself, did he? He said, just as I have loved you. Jesus made himself the standard of love. His love is divine love, a love not found in the human heart. Consider these three important but simple points. Number one, the love Jesus commands is divine love. Number two, it's impossible for us to love just like Jesus. And number three, Jesus still commands us to love just like him. Number one, the love Jesus commands is divine love. He's calling us to divine love. Jesus is the paragon. Jesus is the gold standard of love. His love is God's love. He told his disciples at supper, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Jesus loves with perfect and divine love, and that's what he's calling his disciples to. The love Jesus commands cannot be detached from the love Jesus gave on the cross. Please listen to this. The more deeply we understand the love of Christ in his accomplishments on the cross, the more deeply we will understand how Jesus wants us to love one another. The more deeply we understand the love of Christ uh, in his accomplishments on the cross, the more deeply we will understand how Jesus wants us to love one another. Jesus loved so much that he gave his life But not only his life, he bore the wrath and judgment of God in our place. We can't do that for one another. We can't take someone else's place and and take on and absorb the wrath of God and become their righteousness. Only Jesus could do that. But he commands us nonetheless to a divine love that is not found intrinsically and naturally inside of ourselves. Two, it is absolutely impossible for us to love like Jesus commands us. The human heart doesn't naturally have divine love within it. Genesis 6, 5, just listen to this. This is startling. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Does that leave any room for doing something good and loving like Jesus did? In Genesis 8.21, God said, For the intention of a man's heart is evil from his youth. If you trace it back to childhood, it's only evil. Jesus said that evil things come from the human heart, things like uh, evil thoughts, murder, wickedness, and pride, not love. Left to ourselves, we don't have divine love within us. We can't love like Jesus. However, number three, Jesus still commands us to love just like him. Now, how does that work? How does that work? Jesus commands us to love just like he did, and yet we can't. 
And he's going to hold us personally responsible for how we love, but we can't do it. What is up with that? Our sinful nature prohibits humanity, prohibits all of us from loving like Jesus. Here's the key. Jesus commands you to do what only he can produce in you. So he has to be in you. You understand? I think this is painfully easy. Jesus commands you to do what only he can produce in you, so he has to be in you for you to obey this commandment. You need Jesus in you to love like he commands. Your own willpower, your own determination cannot help you love like Jesus. You have to have Christ in you to do it. And so, my friends, if all that you hear Jesus say is, follow my example, you're missing the essence of love. Hebrews 13, 21 teaches that God equips us with every good, everything good that we may do his will. And then it says God works in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. When Jesus commanded divine love to his disciples, he did not command something He did not command something that he was not also committed to producing in them. Jesus commanded divine love and then sent his spirit to live in them to graciously produce divine love in them. This is God's sovereign grace. This is what it's like for God to show up in your life, change your heart, equip you to love like him, and then you do because he is in you. I want to make sure that this is so absolutely clear. The only way we can obey this command is to be united to Christ by faith so that he produces in us what we could not otherwise produce in ourselves. Jesus explained this to his disciples in John 15, 4. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And then in verse 9, he said, abide in my love. Do you understand? What about John 17, 26? Jesus prayed to God, I made known to them, his disciples, your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Do you understand? Doug Hall has been going through 1 John in Sunday school. I want to thank you, Doug, for your time and your energy to point us to the supremacy of Christ in 1 John. Try to be a part of that class. If you're missing that class, you're missing some good fellowship. But 1 John is somewhat of an exposition of verse 34. Listen to 1 John 3.17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So opening your heart and helping your brother, very practically, happens precisely because God's love abides in you. That is your power to do it, to love sacrificially. God's love has to abide in you. It's got to be in you. What about 1 John 4, 7? Beloved, Let us love one another, for love is from God. 
And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. You see, only a regenerated heart, only a born-again heart, only a heart born of God can love like Jesus because love is from God. The end is never morality apart from Christ, as if morality is an end in and of itself, as if just loving other people and doing selfless things is the end in and of itself. It's not. The end is always union with Christ, which generates morality. It generates love. Before you try to follow Christ's example, make sure that you have been born of God. Make sure that Christ is in you. Make sure that his spirit dwells in you and lives in you. That you are united to him by faith only if you have it in you. Will you actually do it? 1 John 4.12 is good too. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And then a few verses later, John wrote, we love because he first loved us. So when we truly love each other, I mean, when we're laying our life down for one another and we're putting love out there, we are experiencing, please Please understand this. We are experiencing Jesus through each other. The love does not originate in us. It's Christ that we experience through the love of other people. It's him. It's his love in us. Now, some of you, test yourself on this, may find it very, very difficult to receive love from other people. And it's a pride thing. It's a pride thing. We think, no, 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 I, I can get this. This isn't in the notes, but I've got to share it. Christine and I, we forgot our keys, and I was stranded at home, and she was somewhere else. And the Nichols were almost on 283 miles from our home, and it was like, well, should Christina come back and get me, or should the Nichols come? And so the Nichols very kindly came back, and I'm, I'm feeling inside of myself, I don't want this. Now we're taking them out of their way. They're taking their time and all of this. And they came back and I said when I got in the car, I will receive this kindness. I will receive this love. They loved me and us to come back and to get me. But sometimes that's hard because in that, we're like, I'm in a position of need. Are you with me? And so some of you may find it very hard, like me, to receive love from another brother and sister in Christ because you got this. You don't need them to show you love. But that should absolutely never, ever, ever be. Because when another Christian loves you, it is Christ working through that person to love you. It's not them. They're not so natural. The nickels aren't great. I mean, come on. I'm just kidding. I totally love you guys. But, it, but it's Jesus in the nickels. And I think we all can say, we see Jesus in the nickels. It's Jesus. Receive his love through each other. The origin of love is not the person. It is Christ in them. Nod your head if this is making sense. Let's see what Paul has to say about this. Romans 5.5. 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Paul told Timothy that God gives a spirit of love. Galatians 5.22 says, but the fruit of the spirit is love. What produces love in us? The Holy Spirit. 
Where is the Holy Spirit? Inside absolutely every one of Jesus Christ's followers. The new commandment begins with union with Christ. The commandment is new because Jesus is love. His spirit of love indwells believers. And as the paragon or as the example of divine love, he empowers his disciples to love just like him. Jesus commands what only he can produce in us. So he has to be in us and we have to be in him. While Jesus is away, away, excuse me, his love, uh, he wants us to love one another just like he loves us. Love is action. Love, love is a simple command. Children can totally grasp what loving one another looks like. They can understand it. But by ourselves, we'll never love. But with Christ in us, we absolutely will. My point was, love the church, but love it like Jesus does. The church is the one another from verse 34. The one another from verse 34. Jesus was talking to his true disciples, the church, in that upper room. The new commandment to love like Jesus defines the relational environment of the church. Divine love defines the Christian community. It should, love should define Jerusalem church. That's just how we treat each other because we love Christ. Now, the Gospel Transformation Study Bible is a new study Bible that was released by Crossway. Uh, check it out sometime. It's a great resource. But I read in that Bible a study note that I thought was really, really helpful. This is what it says. But the new commandment presupposes a new paradigm. The greatness of Jesus' love for us is now the motivation for our loving others. If we love Jesus truly and deeply, we will love what and whom he loves. The unlovely, the oppressed, those very different from us, and those whose actions have damaged us. This confirming sign of our discipleship is not a badge of our commitment to Jesus. It is rather the beauty of Jesus' commitment to us. Discipleship is not a program for which we sign up. It is a whole new way of life for which we have been raised up, end of quote. That's profound. That's profound. I think I printed that in your notes. Read that. Read that. Meditate on that. Following Jesus is not a program. It's not an attendance sheet. It is a way of life that displays Christ's sacrificial love for and commitment to us. Love among us is not a display of how great we are, but a glorious display of how great Christ is. Christ saves us so that we can love God, and he saves us so we can love each other. It's not easy. In fact, it's impossible. You cannot do this unless you have Jesus in you. This is why you need Jesus desperately every day of your life, and so do I. Then we'll love if we have him. Loving church is how people know you love Jesus. There they were, 11 disciples listening to Jesus. A disciple is defined as a learner, a pupil, a person attached to a leader, and people can detect a disciple of Jesus, not because they say, I'm a disciple of Jesus. That's not how you tell. Uh, not because they work miracles. There it is, I'm a disciple. That's not it either. It's not because they speak in tongues. It's not because they are baptized. It's not because they go to church. It's not because of anything that they do. 
Jesus said this, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And that love is a divine love and that love comes from God. That is the mark of a true disciple of Jesus. I find it interesting that Jesus told the disciples, he first told them that they need to love one another and then he came in and he said that you must have love for one another. I find that, that interesting. In verse 34, love is something the disciples ought to do And in verse 35, love is something disciples ought to possess within them. Only authentic disciples of Jesus possess divine love in them because God is in them, so they are then able to love one another. Love is possessed and love is done. If you have Christ in you, you love like him. Dave Simmons is a former NFL football player. He was a linebacker and a Campus Crusade for Christ staff member. And he wrote this touching little story about his kids that is a great note to end on. So I just want to read you this this story. I took Helen, eight years old, and Brandon, five years old, to the Cloverleaf Mall in Hattiesburg to do a little shopping. As we drove up, we spotted a Peterbilt 18-wheeler parked by a big sign on it that said, Petting Zoo. Well, the kids jumped up in a rush and asked, Daddy, Daddy, can we go? Please, please, can we go? Sure, I said, flipping them both a quarter before walking into Sears. They bolted away, and I felt free to take my time looking for a scroll saw. A petting zoo consists of a portable fence erected in the mall with about six inches of sawdust and a hundred little furry baby animals of all kinds. Kids pay their money and stay in the enclosure enraptured with the squirmy little critters while their moms and dads shop. A few minutes later, I turned around and saw Helen walking along behind me. I was shocked to see, to see she preferred the hardware department to the petting zoo. Recognizing my error, I bent down and asked her what was wrong. She looked at me with those giant, limpid brown eyes and said sadly, Well, Daddy, it costs 50 cents. So I gave Brandon my quarter. Then she said the most beautiful thing I ever heard. She repeated the family motto. The family motto is in love is action. She had given Brandon her quarter and no one loves cuddly furry creatures more than Helen. She had heard and seen love as action and now she had incorporated it into her little lifestyle. It had become part of her. What do you think I did? Well, not what you might think. As soon as I finished my errands, I took Helen to the petting zoo. We stood by the fence and watched Brandon go crazy petting and feeding the animals. Helen stood with her hands and chin resting on the fence, and just watched Brandon. I had 50 cents burning a hole in my pocket. I never offered it to Helen, and she never asked for it. Because she knew the whole family motto. It's not love is action, it's love is sacrificial action. Love always pays a price. Love always costs something. Love is expensive. When you love, benefits accrue to another's account. Love is for you, not for me. Love gives, it doesn't grab. Helen gave her quarter to Brandon and wanted to follow through with her lesson. She knew she had to taste sacrifice. She wanted to experience that total family model. Love is sacrificial action. 
love one another. Let's pray. Father, I I pray that by your Holy Spirit, we can have a love inside of us that so transcends our circumstances and our brokenness and our sin that we can actually love one another just like Jesus loves us. God, when I look at the example of Jesus, I'm buried beneath the realization that I cannot be like him. I am not like him. I have anger issues. I have selfishness. I think about myself all the time. I have a hard time remembering things that are important to people. I put myself before others. God, I can't love like Jesus. He gave his life. He bore the wrath of God as a sacrifice for us. I can't love like that. So I pray that you send your Holy Spirit and that as you, God, are in us, we can actually love sacrificially like Jesus. He'll give us the strength. He is with us. He won't leave us or forsake us. He is the power in us to love just like we can't. So it is possible because we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. That means he can strengthen us to do without things, to sell our possessions, to give to others, to love one another by putting our time down when we don't have time and now all of a sudden you made time and we give it to each other. God, maybe some of us have been gifted with a lot of money and maybe we should give more to each other so that those who don't have as much can have more. Maybe the poor of our city, maybe the poor of Mannheim, let's start there. There are poor people in Mannheim. What if we gave to them just like Jesus did with his heart? So God, this is impossible for us. This sermon, it could discourage someone if they didn't have Jesus, but it should encourage us and compel us to love like Jesus when we know Jesus is in us and he will give us the power and the grace to love like him, to be like him. So God, I pray that you will, will guard us against hearing, well, just, just follow after Jesus' example and help us to see that we can't and that it's all by our relationship and union with your son, Jesus, that we can serve you, the Holy Father. So help us to do that with love in our heart and joy and anticipation and expectation. Help us to want to do this because that's what Christians do. In the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.